0: Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the television show I Love Dick and you care
1: about spoilers, be aware that we do discuss the plot in this episode. We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising: Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Chelsea McMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're
0: spiritual directors and activists exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change.
1: Today's episode is all about desire. Rebecca, what does desire have to do with activism and social change?
0: Well, so I've been been thinking about how when Donald Trump won the presidential election back in November 2016, a lot of people were observing that He did it by really tapping into the emotions both conscious and unconscious of many Americans, especially white Americans. He seems to have engaged some of people's worst fears, anxieties and prejudices. Many people have tried to come up with explanations for what they say is the decline of rational thought and disregard for facts that's sort of feeding this phenomenon. But I think the truth is most psychologists tell us that very rarely do we make purely rational or fact-based choices. Most of the choices we make are rooted in our emotions and our so-called rational justifications are often just a cover for that. So I've been really thinking about... um, This idea that if progressive movements for justice are going to win, are going to achieve their goals, that we're going to have to be willing to engage people's deepest and most powerful emotions. And I think desire is one of those emotions that's often misunderstood, feared and repressed, but it's incredibly powerful when it's harnessed in a productive way. So I want to talk about what it looks like to get in touch with our deepest and truest desires in our personal lives and how communicating with and engaging people by tapping into their unconscious desires can grow movements.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to dive in this uh, with you. You know, something I was thinking about was how... um, conservatives have been so good at like catchy phrases that really grab people and mm-hmm. how uh, often people lament how um democrats and and progressives sort of lack that that um that power you know and mm-hmm. it seems so simple but it's really when it's done well it's so powerful and i mean it changes huge movements and galvanizes tons of people so Thankfully, today, we have um, a special guest with us who will help us tap into our deepest emotions and see how we can maybe harness these for change in our country. Um, Today, we have Deb Helt, a friend of yours. Um, Mm -hmm. who is a therapist, musician, and a documentary filmmaker based in Los Angeles. And Deb, you've also been a labor organizer and urban planner. And so I think your varied background will definitely bring a lot to this conversation. So welcome, Deb. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So Rebecca, you and Deb are really good friends and... Uh, you tell me that you've been having a conversation about desire for a while. So tell us more about that. How did this start? Well, in
0: some ways, I I kind of think it's been going on our whole friendship, but we really started talking about it more in depth after watching this show. I love Dick.
1: Um, on <laughs> on, on Prime. <laughs> That's such a great show for anybody who doesn't know. Um, you should check it out right now. Um, it's A TV show adapted from a book by the same title. Um, It was written by Chris Krause. And it's really the story of a woman struggling to find herself as an artist. Um, but it dives so deeply into sex and desire and relationships. And, uh, I finally, I finally just finished watching the series for myself and I can't stop talking about it. Um, especially to all of my women friends, I'm like, you have to watch the show. And then I tried talking about it with my partner and he was like, I don't really get it. So, (laughs) um, I can't wait to talk more about it with you too. And all I can say is that it is raw. Like if we're talking about going into our deepest, most carnal desires and emotions, I think this is the perfect show to be talking about. So tell me what resonated with you two when watching this show. I'll just say briefly, I think um, what happened for me,
0: you know, I went through uh, a breakup like last year and it was, you know, painful, like a lot of times these things are, but I think one thing you do sometimes after experiencing something that's painful like that is you shut down your desire a little bit because it's just like it's a it's painful it's a little bit painful and what after watching I Love Dick and I don't know well I'll just say right now this is going to be like a little bit of a spoiler for the show um you know, in this show, we watch this woman who uh, feels a little bit like she's kind of like always in the shadow of her husband, like she's struggling to be an artist. And she's making this film that like, doesn't really seem like it's all that great. You know, it's not like really connecting with people. And she's just doesn't seem to know what she's doing. And uh, seems a little bit lost. And she uh, basically encounters this guy who's kind of like a I don't know, he's kind of like a big swinging dick type figure, like, like literally, because that's his name. <laughs> but, um, but he's kind of like this, like, really macho, like, artist who's been super successful. And she develops this crazy crush on him. That's just almost completely ridiculous. It's almost like teenage girl crush, like, she's so, so fascinated by him. And through, she begins to like write love letters to him and then like gives them to him and that makes them public, you know, partly because he's like rejecting her in a lot of ways. And she's, she's both like in love with him and also angry with, angry at him. And um, she gets to be like a little bit of a stalker. Like it's a little bit crazy, but what you see as the show goes on is that um, just l- by giving space for that desire within herself, um, and allowing herself to express it, it's like all of a sudden it opens her up creatively. And so she starts writing these letters to him that are really are really essays about like the state of masculinity and femininity, how it plays into the art world, the way that women a lot of times are marginalized in the art world. Um, she, there, it's really cu- cultural commentary. Um, and so it's kind of, people start to notice what she's writing um there are uh some other characters who like there's one character who starts reading her stuff and it like is like oh this is really interesting and um ends up it's a ends up developing their own sort of like performance art piece as a result um and what you see by the end the last up ep- the-, the last episode there's this thing where she um she finally finally dick like she's like really passionate and alive and all of a sudden dick starts to become a little bit more interested in her and they finally get together at the end of the series or end of it's the first season of the series and um they have kind of a romantic night and they're about to have sex and then like and then he's like I guess got his hand down down her pants or whatever and pulls it out and it's covered in blood and she's like just started her period and you can tell he's like I don't know what to do like I feel really uncomfortable with this messiness of a woman's body Um, he's I don't think he's like just out and out rejecting her being disgusted I think he's like trying to like really like he's. I didn't get the sense that like it totally killed any desire he had for her but it was just like he was kind of uncomfortable and he goes into the bathroom to wash up and she's just like, hmm. And she leaves and she walks out into the night and just walks away from the house. And he comes out of the bathroom and he's like, hey, where did you go? Like, you're not here anymore. And um, and as she walks away, she just has this super contented look on her face. And what I saw in that was like this woman who is like, I don't need this man anymore. I got everything I was looking for. And what it helped me to realize was that I, st- I looked back at my own history of relationships with, you know, not just the person I broke up with last year, but like a lot of a lot of my relationships and a lot of what I've been attracted to in men. And it helped me to see that like I think a lot of what I've been looking for in men is really the things I'm afraid to claim within myself. And I started tapping into like a really conscious way tapping into, My desire, even if it was things that, like, desire for things that maybe seemed a little weird or um, were harder for me to access. And I started just working with that energy and, like, running it through my body and meditation and things like that. And I started, I don't know, it just, like, gave me all this energy. And all this creative inspiration. And that's when Deb and I started having this conversation. We started like really getting excited about projects we wanted to do. And this was actually the time when I reached out to you, Chelsea, about starting this podcast. So anyway, um, that was my experience. And there's a lot more we could say about it. But that was kind of what really, really deeply resonated with me. What about you, Deb? Oh, man. That
2: was uh, (laughs) so many things. I mean, I remember, uh, I hope you don't mind me. Using uh, quoting you, but I remember early yeah. in our conversations because we were thinking like there's something so juicy and exciting here. Uh, maybe we want to write an article, or we, we didn't know exactly where we wanted to go with it, but we wanted to just like have a jam session on these ideas. And I remember you saying that um I don't know if it's you or someone else that was talking about uh, the Spider-Man web thing as a metaphor for yeah. premature ejaculation. And we were laughing because <laughs> we were like. There isn't really a comparable metaphor that I know of for like women in a messy and experimental and dangerous way, like experimenting with, with desire or with, with sex. You know, we still live in a very patriarchal culture where, you know, there's all these messages like don't eat too much. Don't get too big. Don't be too loud. Don't be too lib- libidinous. You know, don't embarrass yourself. Don't be hysterical. Like there's there are more options for women, but there are still these forces that refine us into I think more limited options. So I think mm-hmm. we were both just kind of really excited about the story and really interested in looking at like this woman goes deep into her own feelings and her feelings are the central story really, not just necessarily what the guy does in response to her feelings. And she invites Mm. in embarrassment and debasement and kind of risk of excommunication. And throughout the story, I don't I haven't finished the book full disclosure. But in the movie, I know they they refer to her as the Holocaust wife because she's there.
0: It's because her husband is a like he's a he's an art critic who like specializes in the aesthetics of the Holocaust or something.
2: Right. So they just even they in this progressive art community, they they pretty much write her off as just, like, she's the Holocaust wife, you know? They don't really take her. Right. And I think, yeah, part of her thing, too, is being, like, she kind of admits that her owns that, like, she's a filmmaker, and she's like, my film is a failure, and I'm just going to, like, really look inside and just feel the shit out of these feelings and see what come I come up with. And so Jill Soloway, mm-hmm. the, the, the director, the way that she puts it is that what she comes up with is, she goes, I mean, I guess one way you could put it is that she goes bananas over the sky and really looks deep into her desire and and acts on it. And what she discovers is her voice as a writer. Mm -hmm. And if she had sort of like gone with how women are are typically socialized to say, okay, this guy doesn't share your feelings, you're going to get embarrassed. If she hadn't really just in this wave she wouldn't have discovered her voice and she wouldn't have yeah. sort of like exercised all this stuff yeah so I I guess I came away with it as like very much thinking about the political nature of women's pleasure mm-hmm. and these messages that we have about being too much and wanting too much and I just found the story really satisfying and interesting
0: yeah that reminds me of a quote I mean and we don't have to totally go into this um But there's a novel that came out recently called The Book of Joan, which is kind of like a a retelling of the Joan of Arc story in a post-apocalyptic context. And I was reading an interview with the author, Lydia Yuknovich, and she talks about desire is actually a real like a theme that's running throughout this uh, this book and the way in this post-apocalyptic society, the powers that be have, like, really cut people off from their desires um, and to the point where people's bodies have evolved to not be capable of sex. <laughs> um, and she says, desires and its excesses do not serve the central power systems surrounding family, property, and the state. A woman's body is still considered a form of property in the service of male power and its corresponding systems of authority." Desire, pleasure, and pain that leak beyond those systems meant to keep us locked inside the cult of good citizenship are dangerous to the foundations of a patriarchal culture. And I would add also like uh, racist and imperialist and all of that stuff to that as well. Um, Their use value is in excess of the power structure's needs. If we are ever our own bodies again, if we ever own our own stories of embodiment and desire... If we took those stories back from theology and philosophy and government, we'd likely turn over the very ground of culture. Mm, that's
1: so powerful. And I, I feel like both men and women can relate to this to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when you sort of added not just the patriarchal culture, but, um, but like a capitalistic, consumeristic culture. You know, it's like we're sort of trapped in like this is what's supposed to make us feel good. And if we venture out of that, then, you know, if we venture out of these out of buying things to make ourselves feel good for one thing, um, then we sort of start breaking down those systems that she's talking about. Hmm. But I want to know. Oh, maybe Deb can talk a little bit more about that. Like, you know, how do we like, especially from a psychology perspective, I I was thinking about this. Um, but obviously we can go beyond that. Like, how do we sort of take hold of these desires and take our stories back from theology and philosophy and government, as she says?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. I really like the way you framed it too. It's like, how do we take our stories back? And I think that's another reason why I, why this story really resonated with me in particular, because, um, you know, I'm a, I consider myself like a postmodern narrative therapist. So I try to approach my clients like that. a lot of my training is about asking very non-assumptive questions and asking a lot of questions, very open-ended questions to try to get an understanding of like the language and culture of my client and not imposing an external idea of like, what is sexuality? What is health? What is, um, what is success? You know? And so, I feel like in that is a, is a challenge to capitalism too, or at least the parts of capitalism that tell us we can only be, that womanhood is only about one kind of thing and that mm-hmm. you shouldn't let it get too messy or you're you're going to be isolated, you know, or you're not going to get chosen or, you know, you're not going to be the right kind of product in the system. I don't know if I'm mm. making sense or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So I feel like there is, there is something, I mean, it's about controlling women. I mean, even the fact that she's part of this story, it would be a different story if she wasn't 40, you know, she's, she kind of says, I'm at the, I'm at the edge of that, that age when people start kind of rendering you irrelevant because you're not like a a baby maker or a sex object the way it used to be. Um, and so she really takes, she does take control of the narrative and say, how I feel and what I want is the middle of this story. And I think that that's, yeah, so you, but your question was, how do we take our stories back from these major institutions? And I think as a therapist, part of that is, um, what I think is totally at the heart of what I'm imagining a lot of your work is, is helping people to slow down and Hmm. calm their minds and listen to what their bodies are telling them about what they want and letting those things come to the surface, even if they're unruly, even if they don't fit, um, because, what we think might be on the other side of that is like authenticity, creativity, and just so many more healthy options for women. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's one thing. Is I, I think therapy can do that. I think spiritual direction can do that. We're, we're trying to create more space where women can hear, where all people, not just women, but where people can hear themselves and what they want outside of the pressures of all these institutions. What do you guys think about
0: that? No, I mean, I feel like, yeah, that totally is so much what I do. Uh, of the work I do in spiritual direction and, um, and some of the intuitive work that I do and that, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like from the conversations we've had, like, you know that that's something that I like is important to me is like, what, what am I really feeling? What am I really wanting? Not just what, um, what do I think I need to want or desire? And actually that was to me central to my story of becoming sort of, politically radicalized in a way um was starting to realize like this being on this treadmill of thinking that like I've got to like hit all these cultural signifiers of like making a certain amount of money and then like buying a house and then doing this and I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong or bad but I remember thinking like I don't I don't like working full-time as a nurse. (laughs) Mm. I'm really unhappy and um but I don't know what else I would do that would be like a respectable career (laughs) that that like I could make the right amount of money at and that I could you know and even now I still do that part-time because it helps to pay the bills and I've um I've I've deliberately um sort of like reduced my uh like reduced my living circumstances in a way so that I can have more time for like creativity and for figuring out what I want to do. Um, And that's what led me to spiritual direction and activism and a lot of other things. But I still feel sometimes like when people like even at work, you know, because I only work a couple days a week there and I'm doing some other things and they're like, you only work here a couple days a week. And, you know, what else do you do? Like, sometimes I feel, I feel insecure about that because I'm like, well, you know, I'm in the middle of doing this spiritual and intuitive work and I'm starting a practice around it. And, um, you know, it's like, I know I love doing that stuff and and it does fulfill me in a way that, um, working in the medical industry wasn't anymore, but I still feel like sometimes like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not somehow I'm, I'm because I'm not conventional. Like they're not going to understand me and it's hard.
1: That's what's so amazing about it. Like, I think it's, you know, because it's so revolutionary to really follow what your heart wants that other people don't even know what to do with it. You know, like, why is that a weird thing for you to go for what you actually really want to do in the world? Um, you know, like we're all like so many people are trapped in this, like, well, no, I've been told since the day I could work that you work 40 hours a week and you get a house and you get a car and you get a family and, and that's what we're supposed to want. Right. Right. (laughs) You know? So to think out of those boxes is like, is like so disorienting for some people. And I think that there's like really a process of, of discovering that you don't want to be in that box. And I'm not saying those, things are bad if you want a house and a car and a 40 hour work week, but like to even let yourself ask that question. And I'm wondering, Rebecca, like what was it that sort of cued you into like, Hey, I actually don't want this. Like what desire was sort of like niggling at you? Um, I really wanted to live in community. I wanted to live with
0: other people and I wanted to be part of, I think I wanted to be part of changing things. I wanted to be part of changing the world. I wanted to. I didn't feel like I was doing that in in my nursing career. You know, one of the things that was hard for me was being in. um, So I did ICU. So dealing with the sickest of the sick people, and a lot of times um, working with people who were at the end of their lives, and it was really frustrating to me how. It was really hard for us to talk about. I mean, there, there are people, there's like really great palliative care and hospice people that do do this, but like how hard it was to have the conversations with people about like, what do you really want like right now? Because I would have, you know, these elderly people who lived in nursing homes where they didn't always get a lot of social interaction and who were, you know, really chronically ill, you know, like they would tell me personally, they would be like, I I don't really want all this stuff done to me. Like I'm okay if this Mm. is the end of my life and I'm going to go. And I'm tired of having like tubes shoved up my, you know, um, my urethra or like (laughs) uh, getting poked with IV needles all the time and stuff. And I'm just kind of done, but they couldn't tell their families that. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Um, And that was one of the things that was so soul sucking for me was, you know, I would try to help them communicate that when I could, but, the thing is, like, a lot of times their family members just didn't want to hear it. They're like, no, grandma, like, you just you just got to keep trying. You got to make it to mm. 100. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, 90 is not enough. And, um, you know, it was just like, I don't want to do this anymore, you know our healthcare industry is not focused on, I think, holistic wellness. It's really focused on a lot of symptom treatment and management. And it's very driven by the interest of the pharmaceutical companies, the device manufacturers, the insurance companies and things like that. And so there's All the time there's like more and more requirements and paperwork and documentation and things that you have to do. And I was at the point where I remember people, patients would be trying to talk to me and I'd be like, God, this person – this person's trying to talk to me and they're keeping me from doing my job. You know, like the patient's talking to me, which is keeping me from doing my job, which oh, is wow. charting in the computer. <laughs> um, so that was one of the things. That was one of the things. But also, you know, I talked about this last week. This was um, this was around the time too that like Occupy was going on and I was starting to you know like like i would talk to people about like why can't we have a single-payer healthcare system and they're like yeah that sounds great in theory but it's just really unrealistic you know it was it was again that thing that's like hey i think maybe it's possible to build a world where like everyone could have access to healthcare because they do it in other countries <laughs> um and i see like the injustice that happens in our healthcare industry like i've seen people die um because they were not candidates they they could have been candidates for transplants, they were in some type of organ failure, you know kidney or not usually kidneys are easy to get, but liver failure is really big, <laughs> That's like good they to know get a liver or <laughs> yeah, kidneys are easy. But <laughs> livers um uh you know, like. Like, I, yeah, I remember seeing a woman like they're like, yeah, we just have to put her on hospice. She's going to die because she's in liver failure. And I remember saying, well, why is she why are we not working her up for a transplant? Because she's uninsured, you know, oh. and, and we can't like we can't give a valuable, precious, limited resource like a liver to somebody who's not going to be able to afford the medications and all the care that you have to have in order to preserve that organ once you have it. And so, yeah, like I was really angry about a lot of that stuff. And so one of my desires was like, I want to see, I want to be live in a world
1: where this doesn't happen to people. Yeah. Oh, what a desire, right? Yeah. So I want to like kind of bring it back a little bit. And again, maybe Deb could talk to us about like, like I'm sort of thinking that there's probably like a psychological definition maybe of desires, like what are we really talking about? And, and if I can sort of add a question for all of us to discuss really, but there's sort of like these primitive, like our carnal desires for like sex and food. And, and that's what I see a lot of, um, in I love Dick going back to the show. You know, there's that great scene where she eats, like, 16 tacos.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I loved this, yeah. this image because so really- I was like, I've been there.
1: <laughs> and she looks real crazy while she does it. Yeah, yeah, so crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's looking real crazy. <laughs> but I'm like, I felt that feeling of, like, I need these tacos now, and I need them in my body. And, But, but like, going, you know, because how do we um, connect those sort of more like foundational primitive desires to like our greater desires for the world. You know, I feel like there's a connection there, but I'm not quite sure what it is or how connecting to one helps us connect to the other.
2: Um, You're saying how does connecting to our, our own desire help us connect to like broader desires for the world?
1: Yeah. I mean like, you know, Rebecca just talked about her desire for a different work week sort of, Also, And a different work environment sort of connected to desiring a better world of health care and well-being care for people in this country. Um, But I'm kind of like, you know, when we talk about our desires, I'm like, I just really want chocolate right now. I am so horny right now and I really need to have sex. Like, how does sort of... I don't know, allowing ourselves to go into those desires help us connect bigger things. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this is a, too much of a sidebar, but I kind of wanted to tie in your, your taco eating example. It's like, <laughs> yeah. isn't, that, isn't that a great metaphor for capitalism that like we have these mm-hmm. deep yearnings for sustainability, connectedness to the earth, for human touch, for closeness, for belonging. And the systems that we live in keep us from those things. And we fucking overwhelmingly want to eat some tacos because mm, we wow, just, yeah. you know what I mean? Or like, I think that it's oh, like, it's, that's what I think is so wonderful sometimes about being a therapist is, is like, okay, we all know it's bad to like watch porn 10 hours a day, but we don't want to shame people out of um, what they're into sexually, as long as it's safe, right? Or mm. eating chocolate or all mm-hmm. these things. And I think it becomes compulsive, when these, these deeper desires that are so vulnerable to admit to yet. So universal can't be met. And I think that that, that's sort of like, I think that speaks to like, if we're going to keep ourselves emotionally and physically healthy and not, um, kind of engaging in compulsive self-soothing behaviors, Mm. we need to support one another and we need to slow down and we need to have, um, sort of sustainability interpersonally and sustainability in our lifestyles. Mm. So, and I feel like as a therapist, I really love, I love holding that space where we say, okay, like, let's get in touch with what you want and don't be afraid that it's going to overwhelm you into some sort of compulsive behavior because we're going to find these healthy supports in place to where, like, what is it? what it is you're really hungry for, like, we can admit to it and see if it could be, that need can be met. Does that make sense at all that we're... Yeah. So I think there's desire. I think that we, we need to remove shame around the desires that we're feeling and also remove shame around, um, admitting what might be underneath some of our self-soothing behaviors and and hold them all at the same time.
0: Hmm. What's interesting to me about that is you, you talk about like the ways that like sometimes we're so pushed and driven and then like with these like 60 and 70 hour work weeks and stuff. And like, um, we come home and, instead of tapping into our truest, deepest desires, and all we can do is sort of like compulsively feed more of these superficial cravings. And Mm -hmm. um, just the the irony that a lot of times, sometimes our activist spaces can really replicate that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, just to speak to that, I mean, I'm at the beginning, I've been a therapist for about four years, but one of my dreams since I started has been like what might it look like to be a therapist for activists and to sort of invite in a conversation of what would make activist spaces more sustainable and what how can we create like social capital between each other where we can stay in really hard conversations, you know, and take the stories back and and stuff like that. So yeah, and no, I I completely agree with you. It's like we're fighting fire with fire and shooting ourselves in the foot sometimes. I hope that speaks to what you asked. Um I guess I would say this that um when you talk about the definition of desire from a, like a therapist or psychological perspective, um, I think a lot of, you know, we've seen like the DSM would often shame what we now consider to be normal behaviors, like mm. being gay or, or having mm-hmm. like, you know, being kinky or being bisexual or polyamorous or whatever. A lot of these things as we, as we invite this discussion in, Uh, are kind of held in a space of normalcy increasingly that like, I think we're starting to get the language to be able to say like, as long as we're in agreement and we're in touch with what our authentic desires are and no one's being coerced, there's actually, I mean, I I guess my, as a therapist, this might sound a little bit of corny, but I sort of think of, I think of people as like a bouquet of flowers and our goal is Mm -hmm. to let people be whatever bouquet of flowers they are. They might be mm-hmm. gay, they might love sushi, they might, you know, like, <laughs> they might not want to get married, you know, and also looking at, like, um, I think psychology, or at least a lot of therapy orientations are evolving away from this, like, what's wrong with our desires and towards, like, how does our desire exist in our context, you know, political mm-hmm. and social and familial context, and how can we support a healthy expression of the desire?
1: I I think that there's something here. And, and you said the word shame just now. Um, and I think that maybe there's something here where sort of these progressive movements are sort of, like you said, like normalizing things that used to be seen as deviant, shameful behavior. And I think there's some backlash to that in the collective body of the U.S. You know, there's this really strong backlash against um, our sexual desires and, you know, our gender identities. And, um, I mean, those I think are really big ones. So I wonder, you know, like for those of us who are trying to like really create progressive movements or, and take part in progressive movements, how can we like sort of safely go into that shame or sort of use a different tactic where, (laughs) I mean, I don't think we're shaming, but I think that we're sort of getting a shamed backlash against it, if that makes sense
0: how do we engage the shame of others you mean
1: yeah like or how do we get people to feel more comfortable like in those those areas do you know what I mean are are you saying like how do we how do we support people
2: to like dip into what they might not want to be saying or admitting to because I'm thinking of like one of the things that I do as a therapist is I run a storytelling group um Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's part of it is that we're looking at like kind of the wallpaper of our minds in a way we're telling it's rare in life that you sit and just hear someone spend 15 minutes telling the story of their life where they're not um interrupted or it's not necessarily like a sales pitch for something else but we do this thing where we people will tell the story of their life or tell tell a story from their life about why they're connected to a certain value so maybe like why they're an activist or why they believe in compassion diversity environmentalism whatever and um Sorry, I'm losing my turn at <laughs> that that like I think within telling the story, there's a chance to kind of look at bring to the surface like what values are we even holding that we didn't realize we were holding
1: hmm yeah, yeah, and I think that helps helps me think of a different way to talk about this, so what I was kind of thinking of um and maybe I'll just use what you just said and and even my own experience as an activist is. I think it, it took me a long time to come to terms with my own sexuality and, but because I was in an activist, progressive culture, that is a lot of calling out culture, you know, there was sort of this like, well, I know I should be really sex positive and like really into my sexuality, but like, I don't know how to do that yet. Like I've, I carry shame around that or I have in the past. Does that make sense? Like, so how can we be more like loving in sort of the progressive side of things (laughs) to people who might be carrying some of that shame?
2: Yes. And I love that you just articulated like the kind of counter shame. Sometimes (laughs) we're like, oh, you're not waving the flag Mm -hmm. proudly. Like, fuck you. You're not an ally. You know what I mean? Where You don't know what that, and that's, I guess, where I don't mean to say that like this, this storytelling technique is like, but I feel like there's something about sitting in embodied empathy as someone tells their story that does Mm. something like nothing I've ever seen, because you're not just talking about ideas or how people should be. You're asking like, like, uh, how did you come to be this way? You know, and what are you holding? What are you carrying? And so like for you, it might, people don't know what supports exist to be open or not be open about sexuality. You have to hear the story and you have to listen and you have to empathize with their context. Mm -hmm. But we often just don't, we don't do that exercise. We just, there isn't really space for that. So we're, we're just running around talking about ideas and what policy needs to change and stuff, which is all great. Mm -hmm. But I just wish, you know, like if we, I've seen it with the storytelling technique that um, we use at the clinic where I work, where people, I don't know. It just really fertilizes the soil between people where they can, they, the conversations about politics evolve Mm -hmm. differently. Um, And they, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're just much more heart-centered. Because I, I completely get you. like, I, I've actually, ha- I've been there too where I've had friends who are like, I am much more marginalized than you, but you're 10 times more scared than me to talk about mm-hmm. sexuality. Wow, yeah. And I've been like, dude, I grew up two blocks from my grandparents and, you know, like, they held these ideas that you meet your partner and you're married for 70 years and your heterosexual monogamous relationship is your life. And if you don't do that, you are, I don't know, you're not obeying the rules of what life is about, you know? So it's like, I'm still definitely like shaking off a lot of like fears of talking about stuff. It's Mm -hmm. much, it's interesting. Like, I think it is easier for me to hold space for my clients sometimes than it is for me, but you know, it's, it's getting so much better. But I, I think I know from my work that like, you really have to stop and listen to someone's story before you... just to get context, maybe just to help you hold some empathy for why they're not maybe doing what you want them to be doing.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's so, I mean, because I can relate to that too, obviously, like growing up in a very conservative evangelical culture that was very shaming of sexuality, um, and finding myself in more progressive spaces as I, as I grew up where people were just like, yeah, like this is like something that we celebrate and, um, like it's healthy to be like really open and honest about your sexual desire and i was like i just don't know how to do it mm, right. and now i feel <laughs> shame that i don't know how to do that you know mm. i don't know how to talk to no about it's that. so sorry to interrupt you i was just thinking of
2: a kind of funny story i'm working on a documentary right now that's it's sort of about uh, our culture's emphasis on monogamy and so the the main filmmaker the director interviewed sex workers and we're interviewing people in a polygamous community. So we're looking at a lot of, like, kind of sexual minority communities um, and talking about monogamy and then how how these different communities kind of interact with, I don't know, more mainstream society. Anyway, it was just so funny because I was talking to the filmmaker who is, you know, grew up in San Francisco and has been open about having all different kinds of sex with all different kinds of people, you know, and, like, that she doesn't want kids. You know what I mean? She's sort of like this person who's, it's, it was so adorable because I was like, "I'm here for you. I'm here to tell you, uh, you're actually very innocent and sweet because you don't even realize what you should be ashamed of because you just weren't socialized mm-hmm. in these environments." Where like, so we'll go through the script and I'll be like, "This is what my mom would say here. This is what my grandfather would say here, <laughs> right?" But like, <laughs> we it's sort of like helping her or just supporting her to um, to beef it up journalistically to say like, "We can't assume." That everyone thinks that, you know, that sex work should be legal. We can't assume that everyone thinks that, you know, that all these expressions of sexuality are okay. But it didn't, because she didn't grow up with it, it doesn't occur to her all these arguments of what that means. Wow. Yeah, I don't mm. does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah. I remember bringing this up. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. I don't mean to call her out. <laughs> but I, I said, because I ran a sex, a sexuality, it was like a, it was just a sex and relationships group. But it was a super diverse group. Just racially and gender presentation, sexual orientation—just really so so much liberation and diversity and juiciness and fun in that group. And I remember telling her a little bit about it, and she's just like, "I just think so much of that stuff is just pathology. You know, it's like pica." That's what she said. (laughs) It's like when kids eat rocks or whatever. And I was like, okay, mom. All right. We're going to, we're going to talk more about this like some other time because I can't even deal. Yeah. But it's just, you know, they have this, it's just a deeply held idea that there are these rules that you follow. You know, you, you meet a guy, you lose your virginity to them, you get married, you have a family. And that's like the whole story.
1: Mm -hmm. I'll never forget when I forget what friend it was, but I said something about losing my virginity and she was like, girl, you gladly handed over your virginity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like even just like changing that, you know, cause it's such a, um, yeah. like, you know, it's just a phrase that we all use. It's like, yeah, I didn't lose it. <laughs> I wanted it. To be taken from me.
2: I drop kicked it out the window, man.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that there'd be no shame. Maybe you did drop and kick it out yeah. the window. And that's fine because ladies got options, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that though. When you stop and think about, I think it's a British way that they say they fell pregnant, which I think is so funny. <laughs> they fell pregnant? Like that you fall pregnant or. It's <laughs> wow. like how you fall ill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like all this language, sorry, I'm getting a little off the topic, but I, I just can't even deal with this, like, the way that celebrity journalism talks about people's baby bumps, that they're they're debuting it, they're showing it off. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, shut the fuck up. It's a pregnant woman walking through the world. Like,
0: okay, I'm getting off the topic. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, they make it super cutesy, like, oh, it's like this, like, it's a, like, it's a, I don't know, like, it's something that they acquired for... Sort of fashion like show off to people, yeah, yeah, like in a fashion. And not like, way, like it's yeah. something
1: that's going to erupt soon, <laughs> you know, like shove out this this uh, screaming bloody mess.
2: Well, what can I ask? What did it mean to you when your friend, screaming bloody mess? that's so funny <laughs> when your friend um, challenged you about saying that you lost your virginity. Did you have any? If you don't mind me asking, did you have any feelings about her saying that
1: to you, or? Um, well now I just remember like, Oh yeah. Like why? I mean, because, and maybe this is just because of how I did lose my virginity. It was great. You know, it wasn't like this awkward. I know this is like a unicorn story, but it was like really (laughs) fun. And there was like no amount emotional baggage tied to it. And it was just so great. And I was like, wow. Yeah. I really just did gladly hand it over you know? Um, but that definitely, that moment does not define my sexual journey. I mean, I've definitely had like really awkward trysts, you know, that were just like, (laughs) not like, and I feel like they were like sort of bumps in the road that I had to go through to kind of get to where I am now. But like,
0: yeah, I think sometimes you see a model of who somebody else is who might be like way more sexually adventurous and voracious than I am and I think there was a time in my life when I tried to be more of that and it like they yeah there were some encounters where I was just having sex with people that I didn't really feel good about or didn't really like that much um, just to do it and I think the other thing for me is like I sometimes still feel this when I'm in um, circles where people are talking about polyamory or non-monogamy or whatever, which I totally respect, but when I hear people say like, yeah, monogamy is just so unrealistic and it's ridiculous and like people who want that. And I'm like, I actually really do believe in monogamy, like for me personally, like that's actually something that I enjoy Like and that there are a lot of things that I like about it. And it's okay that we can have different ways of ordering and sort of like, um, I guess organizing our, our sexuality, but I'm like very much like, yes, I like to be with one person at a time. And I like to have like a really deep connection and some sort of commitment is generally preferable for me. Yeah. I Um, think it's interesting that you speak, you know,
2: maybe this is an overreach, but like maybe that's connected to capitalism too. This idea that someone has to be right and one option has to be the best. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I just look at it as, like, monogamy. You can make a relationship special just by the fact of saying, I am going to forego other relationships for this relationship. I mean, do you know what I mean? Just yeah. sort of almost like just mapping out, okay, what is monogamy but a series of decisions and rules and that might work for someone and not work for someone else? Yeah. What makes it so hard for people to hold the possibility that, something could work for someone else that doesn't work for them yeah and I think that's where the culture yeah I I really yeah I was just thinking too about experimentation and um I think it's still really hard for women to experiment outside of like the watchful eye of culture and yeah to risk you know being displeasing to risk being called a slut I mean really what we're talking about is like behaviors that still equate a social death in certain circles. And I think we can't ignore the fact that like when you pressure women out of experimenting and obtaining experience, I'm not saying making the same mistake a million times in a row, but like that stuff makes you resilient and it makes you wise. And so if you shame women out of obtaining experience, you're really like truncating their their power yeah. and their potential in the world. And I think that's really awful.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the things like, like I can't say that like, I necessarily regret anything I've ever done because it's just like, well, I I always learned and I, I grew from it and I learned more about what is it that I really do want or do like. And that was one of the things that like in my culture that I grew up in, there's so much shame around this idea like if you make a mistake, mm in your sex life or dating life or whatever, like you are like, they would do this. um, They would like tell these stories or like use these metaphors. Like, um, like, Oh, yeah. Like taking a rose and like giving your rose petals away to like the wrong people. And like at the end, when you meet the right person for you, then all your rose petals are gone. And all you oh, my like, God. This. It was so crazy. Um, but yeah, there was all this fear. Yeah, your fear around experimentation and fear and even just that idea that like mistakes like, oh, God, like you can't make a mistake. You could ruin yourself for the rest of your life. It was totally crazy. But I think we have that fear in so many other areas in our lives, right? Like, oh, my God, like, what if I choose the wrong major in school or like, I, I like. yeah.
2: Well, and yeah, that really, I, oh, sorry to interrupt. That really no, go goes ahead. back to the I love dick thing, because I, I think you had a really amazing quote. Or, or one of us wrote it down where Chris Cross actually says like. Oh, here it is. Why does everybody think that women are debasing ourselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement? Why do women always have to come off clean?
0: Hmm.
2: Well, and I, I would argue it's, I mean, that's a great way to control a woman is to say your only value is when you're like an yeah. field. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're probably getting towards the end of our time here. Um, is there anything else that we want to talk about briefly to
1: wrap it up? Um, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot of ground today and I think and I want to sort of leave this with I was like oh wow how do we tie this up and make it really neat but I think what Deb just said about this messiness like why do (laughs) we need to come off clean (laughs) we're gonna end this episode with where we're at right now yeah yeah Yeah, well yeah or like
2: me I now I'm gonna try to tie it up like a product sorry all capitalist. (laughs) like no I was just thinking that like Maybe a a sort of a gentle call to action is that the goal is not to reach a particular place, but the goal is to act with authenticity and to support Mm. each other, to Mm -hmm. rebel against the culture when the culture doesn't match with what our bodies are telling us we want or we
1: feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's totally well said. So I'll definitely be carrying that with me as I explore my own rebellion against this culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, well, we like to end our shows by asking, um, what is nourishing you right now? Deb, can you tell us what's nourishing you? Sure. Uh, I've been reading
2: The Ethical Flut, <laughs> 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 which not because I'm necessarily trying to be become a polyamorous person, but um, I've been really enjoying the way the book talks about, like, Kind of approaching the world like it's full of love and, you know, like that Mm. every relationship can be valuable even if it's something that lasts for a day. And that's been really helping me kind of love myself in the face of a culture that tries to make me scared all the time. Mm. Um, I'm also not drinking alcohol for this month and it's just been only two weeks but I feel amazing and listening to Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast. So yeah, those are a couple of things I think that have been really
1: floating my boat. Nice. What about you, Rebecca?
0: Um, Well, before I say that real quick, I just want to say I love that you said you're not drinking alcohol right now, Deb, because it's just it to me that speaks to that whole thing of like, what, what is it that I think is the compulsive thing that's going to satisfy my desire versus like, how do I get rid of that so I can get in touch with my deeper desire? You know, Um, yeah, but. Um, so anyway, what's nourishing me right now, a couple things. One is just buying fresh flowers for my mm. house. <laughs> sometimes I'm at the store at the farmer's market and I'm like, I really want to get some flowers, but I'm like, no, it costs money and what's, they're not real. it's not practical. And so sometimes just saying, I'm going to spend the $10 to buy some flowers just to make my space beautiful, has <laughs> <laughs> um, actually been nourishing me. And uh, another thing is I'm reading this book right now that a friend recommended to me called um, The Language of Emotions. It's by Carla McLaren. And she's like a sociological researcher um, who also is like deeply empathic and has done some intuitive work as well. But she um, she really just talks about like this idea that um, we have to get in touch with our emotions which is what we're talking about here and that so much of the time um, we're taught by our culture and by most spiritual systems that like our emotions are something to be afraid of that um, we uh, like we spend a lot of times trying to control them or repress them and so she really talks about like goes through different emotions and it's funny she doesn't have like desire or passion in there because I was looking for that chapter because I thought I'll read it before this conversation I don't know why she didn't include that one but she talks about things like anger and even shame she says like these emotions actually really have a purpose and they're there to teach us something and um, learning to listen to them and allowing ourselves to feel them and learning to listen to them and learning to let their energy move through us, not to become stuck in them <laughs> uh, and not to become like driven by them, but just to let them move through us and, um, and listen to their messages, how important that is. And she gives people practices for being able to do that. So I, she was the first person I had ever heard say like, actually, shame is a really valuable emotion. It has, it has a place. Mm. And, This is why. So
1: I thought that was really interesting.
0: Mm. That sounds great. What about you, Chelsea? Yeah.
1: Um, Lately, I've been thinking about comedians using their art form for um, resistance. Um, A few months ago, I read this book called Small Acts of Resistance, and a few of the stories detailed how comedians and artists around the world have used their work to subvert dictators and oppressive governments and, uh, and sometimes report real news when journalists weren't really allowed to do that or weren't, um, able to do that in other ways. Um, and so I've just been really heartened seeing like our late night talk show hosts, um, use their platforms to really speak out. Um, and like, I feel like since the election, SNL, like really stepped up their game and had some really sort of biting humor. Um, And recently we saw Tina Fey with her delicious sheet cake sketch, um, making fun of white liberals and armchair activists. And, and I I know that some of us wish she had really issued a call to action. This was sort of around the whole Charlottesville um, thing, but I really just appreciated how self-aware it was. And I think we all need to make fun of ourselves sometimes. Um, and it really spoke to a, a powerlessness that I think a lot of people are feeling right now. So, um, but yeah, I'm really nourished by humor getting us through uncertain times. So, thanks again, Deb. Thanks for joining us. Um, thanks to all of you for a great conversation.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.
0: And we also want to thank our listeners for joining us. You can go to to listentotherising.com for links to some of the things we talked about. And we'll see you next week on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution.